This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY, the podcast for writers on how to live the writing life. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is writer Heinz Insu Fenkel. He's the author of the novel Memories of My Ghost Brother, a Penn Hemingway finalist and Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers selection. He is known for his collection of Korean folktales and for his translations of Buddhist texts. And he teaches creative writing, Asian and Asian American literature and film at the State University of New York at New Pulse. His new novel, Skullwater, is just out from Spiegel and Grau. Welcome, Insu. Hi, Marian. It's great to be here. Well, thank you for coming along. My audience is made up of writers, and they want to live writing lives. So let's start out by talking about yours, if we can, please. As I said in the intro, you're a collector and reteller of folktales, an honored translator, a novelist, and much more. But that's not where you started. So can you recall for us, if you would, how and when your writing life began? It's sort of started by accident in seventh grade English, I think. Um, before we moved from Korea to Germany, f following my father's uh, duty stations, I had tried, I think I had tried typing a novel because I was interested in typewriters. <laughs> At the mm -hmm. Ascom craft shop, there, there was a, uh, one of those clunky old Underwoods and I had seen somebody typing on it. So I, so I thought that's what writers do because I had seen <laughs> American films where journalists do that you know, two finger hunt and peck typing. So I mm -hmm. thought um, I, I would give it a shot. And I got as far as uh, about two paragraphs, and it was just so difficult, I gave up. So th that was my first failure as a, as a writer. Although when I think about what I was working on then, I still remember it was a mishmash of Farley Mowat and Lord of the Flies. So that was my first failed engagement as uh, a wannabe writer. But then what happened was we, we moved to Germany, and in my seventh grade English class, uh, we were required to write two pages a week on any topic we wanted in one of those you know, spiral notebooks. And I didn't realize that everyone else in class had the, the ones with the large rules, so they didn't actually have to write that much. <laughs> uh, my notebook had the college rule, and mm -hmm. coming from a culture where paper was really precious. Even scraps of paper lying around the house were kind of precious. I wrote with a, a fine tip fountain pen and I would, I would write two lines in between the blue lines and go oh. from one edge of the paper to the other, ignoring those red margins, which I didn't understand or what they were for. And it was immensely difficult to write two pages like that. And I realized, you know, I don't have much to say, but if I write down the things I remember my uncles telling me, I could write something. And so 
I accidentally became a translator and a writer all in one go. (laughs) That's so lovely. And I just adore the idea of the two lines of your writing in between the lines on the page. You mentioned your father, he was an American GI. Your mother was a Korean black marketeer. And you, as you describe yourself, were a mixed-race kid who had a rough time growing up in Korea. You write beautifully from one of the most difficult places to live, in limbo, in liminal space, from the outside of cultures. Can you speak a bit about the position of outsider and what tools it provides as a writer? Well, one of the aspects of being in between like that is that it amplifies the the role of communication and language. And so even though it's a condition in which you're you're being oppressed and bullied and picked on, one of the things that you develop as a necessity is the ability to comprehend things and also mm-hmm. to to communicate effectively and quickly. And I think that combined with the fact that this was happening in two and a half languages, and I say half because my father also spoke German, that really helped me become a writer. And the fact that I was also from a family of storytellers, Koreans in general are good storytellers, especially when they drink. Um, they, at one time they were called the Irish of the East. Uh, but I have in my, heard that. <laughs> And of course, you know, it it means they share not only the good qualities, but the bad qualities of the the Irish. Um, But in my family, I had two two uncles who were very, very good storytellers. One of them lived with us uh, for a while, and I would literally harass him into telling me stories just about every day uh, to the degree that he would purposely tell me mangled folktales, not revealing to me that he was jamming them together or, you know, making biographical claims for you know, what turned out to be classic folk stories. And these were things I discovered much later when I was in graduate school studying folklore formally. Mm-hmm. So, so I think the aspect of being in between like that intensified the, the role of all the languages that I had to, to live in. It makes sense. And I love that idea of intensifies. And I think that it gives that observational tool a big shine, you know. But I have to say, mangled folktales, you know, you might want to hang on to that for a title one of these days because it's, it's a pretty good title for a book of stories. Speaking of stories, I read a story of yours in an accompanying interview with you in 2015 from The New Yorker where you talked of this novel, Skullwater, this new novel of yours, and the story I was reading was being taken from, as you said in the interview, a work in progress, which is now this novel. So can you talk about that process, please, of of writing stories along the way to them becoming a novel? Are you testing your material on the public? Are you testing your material on you? What is that? It it, it feels like a kind of a a quilting or something, you know, to me, but I'm not a fiction writer. So talk a little bit about that process, please, of publishing stories along the way to making them into a novel. Well, for, for both of my novels, uh, Memories of My Ghost Brother and Skullwater, I was dealing with largely autobiographical material. So on the one hand, the process of writing wasn't like a, you know, setting out to write a fictional work and having to worry about things like plot. The material was all already there. 
And one of the challenges, of course, was uh, remembering it into being. The other task was to take that material and present it in such a way that it constituted a story. As you know, one of the problems with writing autobiography is that the material is very meaningful to you, but it may not be of any interest to the reader. Uh, mm -hmm. So w one of the ways to work with the material is to turn parts of it into stories as you go along and then put those parts together until they sort of organically grow into what would constitute a book. For Memories of My Ghost Brother, I had, um, I think, around 80, 80 to 100 pages that didn't fit with that story. So I put those aside, and part of that became the beginning of Skullwater. Mm -hmm. But then with, with Skullwater, uh, because the, the structure of, of the work and the nature of the story is very different, and the, char the character Insu is older, there was a, a different challenge to make that work. And there were certain structural things I had done in, in Ghost Brother that I didn't want to repeat. And so the technique I used in Skullwater was actually to incorporate something that came out of um, the autobiographical part, part of the narrative, which is my big uncle's consultation of the I Ching in a very strange and idiosyncratic way that might have been some secret tradition I didn't understand. And um, he does that in the novel, but I thought, what if I turned this into a composition method? And so what I did was I consulted the I Ching the way he had done in order to structure the, the book. And that's one of the reasons why the structure of, of Skullwater, it's, it's not a linear plot, it's more like a woven plot. And mm -hmm. um, I found that following the I Ching and the intuitions that it sort of released was very effective for that. That's lovely. I have a, a, about a billion questions that comes out of that, but let's just help the listeners along for a moment because the title of, of, of Skullwater is so curious. And I want to talk about the autobiographical territory a bit, but I want to just first explain that the title comes from an idea that Skullwater is the fluid said to accumulate in the human skull and that it can cure any illness. And I have to admit, I was utterly drawn in by the title and then completely carried along by how it's used in the story. But why don't you explain, if you would, this relationship that you have to this title and, and where you got it and how this formed this idea of a story? Well, so this will probably sound kind of esoteric in some sense, but on the one hand, Skullwater is this, this folkloric belief. It probably comes from um, like some misunderstood Taoist tradition. Koreans um, incorporating ideas that come from traditional or, or Chinese medicine. But in the story, it's also resonating with the, the story of the famous Buddhist monk Wonhyo, who accidentally drinks water out of a skull in the dark cave in which he has taken shelter on the way to uh, go to study Buddhism in China. And what happens is in the morning he wakes up and discovers that he's drunk water out of a skull. Hmm. He's in a cave that's also a burial chamber. And when he realizes that, he understands something about the nature of the mind and illusion, and he doesn't have to go to China anymore. He just comes back to Korea. 
the, his traveling companion continues to China to study there. So there's that link to the folkloric tradition, but also the history of Buddhism and the, the story of Wenhou. But also in terms of the role it plays in the action of the story, I did go up with my friends to dig up a, a skull. It had disastrous results, of course, uh, which mm-hmm. you'll have to read about in the, in the novel. So all of those are, are woven together, but at the same time, because I'm a, a folklorist and you know, I'm, I'm also a semiotician, I understand that A, when something is referenced as a, as a folk cure, or if there's some sort of superstition about, about something, there's generally a reason for it. Right? Those things don't emerge out of nowhere. And when I was teaching a course called Great Books of Asia, I was looking very carefully at things like symbolism. And one of the things I discovered was that a lot of the, the things that we interpret figuratively, if we look at them more literally, turn out to be referring to some pragmatic thing. And for skull water, there are a couple of things. One is that it makes sense that as a folk remedy, it would be said to cure anything because if you think about skull water literally, what it is is cerebrospinal fluid and that's where you would find stem cells. Mm -hmm. You would harvest stem cells from from there. And stem cells are things that are a sort of um, contemporary panacea for, for things. And of course, the other thing is skull water is where your neurological activity occurs. That is the medium through which consciousness is occurring in your brain all of those things together end up being a kind of thematic resonance in the novel. Yes, they certainly do end up being a kind of thematic resonance. Absolutely. It's a, it thrums through the book in a way that's quite compelling and, and very, very beautiful. I, I loved this book. I, I found myself thinking a lot about many things while writing, uh, while reading it. And one of them was this, obviously you've just brought, you brought it up before, this autobiographical aspect of your work, first novel, second novel. And you, you touched on very beautifully a few minutes ago the difference in how you annotated from your life for the first and then the second. Um, but I get this question a lot because I teach memoir. And a lot of people, and, and you touched on this a little bit about autobiography, but people ask me a lot when they get to this a tough place, should they fictionalize their lives rather than writing memoir? And after many years of teaching and editing, I'd say that those who are considering this are usually those who are, are confronting the most difficult of topics. So can you just talk a little bit more about the decision to write autobiographically through fiction versus, say, writing memoir? I mean, you touched on it. You said, well, you know, the hardest thing is to make it interesting to the reader. But from the writer's point of view, why else would you autobiographically write autobiographical fiction but not necessarily memoir? Yeah, that's a a tough question. And and I guess... um it has to have both you know, intrinsic and extrinsic components. Because what happened for me was when Ghost Brother was published, the decision to market it as a novel came from the publisher and not from me. I was, I guess I was naive then. And I thought, you know, why couldn't this book just be released as literature? You know, the way Maxine Hong Kingston's um, Woman Warrior was basically um, 
cross-categorized, right? Because that, yes. that book is listed as literature, biography, history, and, and uh, nonfiction too. So, mm -hmm. so I thought, you know, maybe my book could be um, released and not labeled in any way. But I was told very clearly that that's not how it works. The book has to be marketed so that stores like Barnes & Noble know where to put it. And mm -hmm. their decision was that memoirs by people who weren't already famous didn't sell very well, but um, a novel by a writer of color that was a first novel would attract more attention. So that was their, their marketing logic. And of course, they were entirely wrong because my book w was released the same season as Angela's Ashes, which totally changed the face of publishing when it came to memoir. Um, yes. Although there were reasons why, why the, the Irish revival and everything put a spotlight on, on that book. But, but anyway, um, having come out of that process, I had to look at my own writing in a different way. Now, part of, part of what I'm doing as a writer is um, the, the tradition I'm writing in is also a Korean tradition. In Korean literary tradition, writers um, generally write things that are very much autobiographical and they're conveyed as fiction, but there's a tacit understanding from every reader that the fiction is always pretty thinly veiled. So mm -hmm. I understood that tradition very clearly. Um, and then when I was actually engaged in, in writing after uh, Ghost Brother, one of the things I, I also realized was that in many ways, reality, and therefore writing something like memoir, is far more complicated and in many ways less credible than fiction. Uh, fictionalizing actually permits for uh, smoothing out the rough edges of reality and for making a, a story that would otherwise be less plausible, ironically more plausible. And if you think of taking things that really happened and then conveying them in such a way that they resonate more, I guess you would say, with more rhetorical power to the reader, mm -hmm. then fiction is generally superior to that. I mean, that's why the Russians uh, once said, political tracts don't cause revolutions, novels do. Yes. And I think that's very true. I think it is too. I think it is absolutely too. We've made a lot of comments there about being told what your work is and but having someone else decide this is really a piece of fiction and, and the difference, that's a such a cultural difference, as you just said so beautifully, with what you know to be true of Korean memoir and fiction writing. And so let's turn our attention back to those who are listening for a minute because you've chosen to write this beautiful book that, that has has all kinds of things that perhaps the governments of Korea and U.S. might rather just leave in the past, mixing in with what the dead know and how they inform the living and braiding together the early days of the Korean War with a life of a boy in 1970s Korea. And we talked about that whole idea of you being marginalized and bullied in your life. And I think that some of these are very tough topics. So for those people who also have tough topics on them, and in these really pretty terrible times of rights being repealed and libraries being, well, gutted in America, some writers might not view these as welcoming times for writers who are writing from the outside. So what can you say, please, to them 
to keep them telling their tales? I would say it's times like this that are exactly the time when writers from the outside need to be writing. Because otherwise, uh, how will people in the future remember these things? Mm -hmm. Because the things that are, that are happening, as you point out, and in fact, a lot of the history that's in my novel is unpleasant. It's things that people often choose not to remember, willfully not to remember. And when society does that, the result is disastrous. In, in Korean tradition, one of the, the central ideas for a writer, and which, by the way, is, is sort of dissolving in this generation with the commercialization of, of literature, is that the writer is actually like the social and historical voice of the people. So one, one does not take on the task of being a writer lightly. In Korean tradition, it's also understood that if you choose to be a writer, you'll probably be destitute. So it's, it's not something that's desirable. It's almost a, a calling that you cannot resist. Hmm. And I think if, if you're writing from the margins, that's one of the things you have to realize. It's also important to, to resist the, the pressure to make your writing more popular or commercially palatable just to mm -hmm. sell more copies of your work. You have to maintain a, a kind of deep integrity. And I understand that's a, a different kind of writing than writing for the purpose of entertainment. But if you're mm -hmm. working on things that are seriously meaningful to you, you really have to try to maintain that integrity. That's a beautiful answer, and I so deeply appreciate it. And, and I want to follow up on something you said there. According to your interview material, your wife refers to this novel as the Great After Mash novel, a reference to the American TV show that still runs, and for many living Americans is perhaps the best background material they have for the Korean War. And I suspect we can agree that while most thinking Americans mostly recognize that we're a nation of immigrants, as a population, we remain wildly undereducated about the home countries of our citizens. So what accommodations does a writer have to make in terms of educating an audience? You had to educate us a bit in this book, but you just made a very strong statement about, you know, you're not supposed to, cut, well, as the great Lillian Hellman said, right, you're not supposed to cut your conscience to fit this year's fashions. What's your obligation in terms of giving us the background on a war that you know we might know only from a TV show? Yeah, well, I have very mixed feelings about uh, MASH because on the, on the one hand, it's a very problematic TV show. But if you were a, a fan of MASH and followed it, you could see that it became more and more serious as a drama as it went along. I think it, it understood its um, position in American culture. And people who worked on it and the, the actors, I think, all understood this as the seasons progressed. So early episodes of MASH and later ones are like tonally very, very different. And of course, MASH uh, began as a, a movie, as a feature film, which I saw in the theater, I think maybe a year after it was released, you know, in a theater full of GIs. And originally it was a allegory for the Vietnam War too. Mm -hmm. So I, I understood um, the, the different resonances of MASH, even when they... Um, misrepresented or failed to represent uh, Korea accurately. And of course, for me, uh, MASH is also a very nostalgic sort of thing. I remember when we came back from Korea in 1985, 
I would often start the day by watching a rerun of MASH, <laughs> which is a sort of ironic way of resonating with Korea. So when it comes to representing history and not uh, manipulating or, or leaving things out, I think the writer's duty in, in some ways is to convey it with warts and all, so to speak. And that's mm -hmm. why so much of what's in Skullwater seems very dark, but it's actually dark because that's how things really were. And they're also, um, I guess, there are incidents and themes that in contemporary Korea and also in contemporary America are things that we would rather not have put in our faces again because we would like to believe that we have kind of moved beyond such things. But as mm -hmm. we know uh, from what's happening in the world right now, in Ukraine, for example, we should not put those things away. It's only by remembering such things that we hopefully will not repeat them. Yes. Well, as we, as we start to wrap this up, I can't help but ask you about the skills you have on you and how they are utilized. As I said before, you're a teacher, a novelist, a translator, someone who has retold Korean folk tales. In other words, you're fully immersed in the world of story and writing. But it's your translation and your folk tales that I'd just like to pull on a little bit more right now. I wonder how those skills, being a translator, running your hands over the work of others, your eyes, your mind, bringing those stories to us, and folk tales, which are ancient and retold by you, they, they have something in common. I don't know what it is, translation and, and retelling of folk tales, but I want to know how they function in you as a novelist. I want to know what skills, what appreciation. Obviously, you draw from story from Korea and, and, and the whole idea of Skullwater. I get that part. But as a translator and, and folktale teller, where does that sit in your novelist heart and mind? Yeah, that's a, a big question. Um, folk tales, and you could um, include things like uh, Grimm's fairy tales, which aren't exactly fairy tales. But one of the things that's very unique about folk tales, things that have authentically come out of oral tradition over a long period, is that they are tremendously economical and condensed stories. And that is the reason why they're so enduring. They've been told so many times, and in each retelling, a story that's in oral tradition has interacted with an audience. So it's a, a story that has become smoothed over the ages into its most pure, economical, and effective form. And it's full of layers and layers of meaning. And that's why when you hear of a folktale as a child, it means one thing. And as, as an adolescent, you discover it means another thing. And as an adult, it means another thing. And then when you're 60, it means something entirely different. So that's something you can learn by studying folklore. When you're translating, and this is something I would, I would recommend to everybody, one of the things you're doing is you're not simply turning you know, one language into another by substituting words. What you're really doing is you're trying to recreate the effect that the piece had in your mind and, and you're trying to convey that 
by assembling words in the other language that may not be exactly the dic dictionary parallels of the words, but words that create the same effect. And what that means is you have to understand the thing you're translating before you can do that. Um, mm. So translation requires a deeply engaged reading and it requires a interpretation. You, you can't really effectively translate something you haven't interpreted. So every translation comes from a particular angle. And over the years, as I was translating contemporary and modern Korean literature especially, what I discovered was actually, as a novelist, I'm still just a translator. I'm actually translating the images and feelings in my own experience and putting them on the page. And I think that realization made a, a tremendous difference to me uh, because I realized that what I was doing as a writer was uh, similar to what, uh, what Jung would say about the role of dreams, right? Dreams are trying to tell you something, but they communicate in this other language. And that's why they seem so strange and mysterious. But if you understand the symbolism and the semiotics of dream language, you can actually communicate with another part of your consciousness. And um, translation is, is that sort of process. It's taking things that are, they, they may, may even be visceral or physical impulses and emotions and uh, images and the memories of sounds and sentences and um, conveying them into, into language in the most effective form. Um, so I would encourage uh, translation for everybody. Um, I think in my case, um, when I was translating the Korean Buddhist classic, The Nine Cloud Dream, it's a 17th century Korean Buddhist classic by Kim Manjung, and it was written in imitation of Tang Dynasty Chinese. It took me 12 years to translate that novel. And I think um, that made a tremendous difference in my abilities as a, a writer. It increased my palette of, of uh, literary tools. That is the most generous and lovely answer. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for this. It's just been a joy talking with you. The book is beautiful, and I, and I just wish you all the best with it and with everything else you do. I will, um, I will look for more. Thank you so much, Insu. Oh, thank you so much, Marion. It was wonderful to be here. The writer is Heinz Insu Fenkel. The book is Skullwater, just out from Spiegel and Grau. See more on him at HeinzInsuFenkel.com. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to QWERTY. QWERTY is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com, the home of the Memoir Project, where writers get their needs met through online classes and how to write memoir. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow QWERTY wherever you get your podcasts and listen to it wherever you go. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It helps others to find their way to their writing lives. 